Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you inspired Paul to put pen to paper to instruct and to encourage the church in Corinth. We pray, O Lord, that as we read your holy inspired word that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Second Corinthians chapter eight, beginning at verse one, listen to the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. And in this matter, I I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness as it is written. And as Stan read just a moment ago, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Here in the reading of God's word is the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finishing doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, what's Paul talking about exactly here? Well, if we read the book of Acts and we read the two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, you can see that, you know, Paul helped start the church in Corinth and, and while he was there, uh, he w- was uh, ministering to them. And, and as you read through the book of Acts, you can see that Paul begins to gather a collection for the church in Jerusalem, the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. He goes to the churches in Galatia that he had helped start and into uh, Macedonia and to Achaia, these predominantly Gentile churches, and he begins to gather collections so that these Gentile churches might offer financial support to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He does this so that he might help ease the tension, the historical tension that has existed between Jew and non-Jew, between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. He knows that by giving this gift from the Gentiles that the Jewish church will be more receptive to their faith and they could be more connected as one body together. 
is when we read both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we can see that Paul had some conflict with the church in Corinth. Specifically there, the church was divided. There were some who, who said, well, I follow Apollos. And there were some who said, well, I follow Cephas. And others said, well, no, I, I follow Paul. And of course, G- and Paul points out that the only person we should follow ultimately is Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes a a harsh letter, a severe letter, to challenge the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth had actually begun to question Paul's apostleship in many ways. And so as they're questioning Paul's apostleship and his leadership, he writes this severe letter that he has Titus deliver to the church in Corinth, hoping that they might repent. And of course, we learn in 2 Corinthians that when Titus delivers this letter, the church in Corinth recognizes their sin and their rebellion and the the fact that they had rejected Paul previously and they they humble themselves and and now they're willing to follow his leadership and and, and Paul is grateful for that. We read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the chapter right before the one I I just read. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 6, we read these words that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the becoming of Titus And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now that the church in Corinth has, has repented from their sins and their rebellion and resisting Paul's leadership, Paul is now in our chapter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, reminding them of that pledge they had made a year ago, a pledge, a commitment they had made to help finance and support the church in Jerusalem. You see, the church in Corinth was a wealthy church. It lived in a city of great commerce. They were very affluent. They had done well. And they, Paul had shared with them the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And so in 1 Corinthians, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul gives very specific advice on how the church in Corinth might fulfill the pledge they've made and raise the money they need to help support the church in Jerusalem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, Paul offers these specific instructions on how the church in Corinth should give and raise the money. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry out your gift to Jerusalem. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is reminding them, remember that pledge you made, that commitment you made? Now let's fulfill that commitment. Let's see it through. Let's complete what you had decided you were going to do. That's why we read in verse 11, so now finish doing it as well. Finish doing what you'd committed to do so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Church in Corinth, you made a commitment. Now let's see that commitment through. As we come to the end of 2015, how are we doing it, completing the commitment we made in 2014 to this church? Many of you received this wonderful magazine. If you didn't get it in the mail, we, we have several uh, around the campus in the Great Hall. You can pick one up. But this is our Celebrate magazine we give out every year, celebrating what God has done in and through our church in, in 2015. And, and as we celebrate all that God has done, you can see that in the back there's a, a budget for 2016. And now in November, we're going to ask all of us in a moment to make a commitment to 2016 so that we, as the leadership of the church, the session and the finance committee, can begin to realize what can we do in, in 2016. 16 as we receive these pledges. You need to know that this budget that's in the back, that's 2.5 million, that's a proposed budget. 
We believe in having listened to the ministries of our church and the opportunities that exist. This is the right budget for us. We've certainly seen some increases in insurance costs and we've seen some increase in property expenditures and and of course we've seen some increases uh, in the growth of certain ministries and we want to fund those. And so we're showing you here what we need to do. But as we do every year, we ask for a commitment. And as we come towards the end of 15, how are we doing in fulfilling the commitment we made last year to giving to the church this year? You may like to know that our church budget is ahead of where we were a year ago, but our budget is bigger than it was a year ago. And if your family is anything like mine, you've fallen a little bit behind. In fact, as I received this uh, wonderful uh, uh, magazine, I also received a, a printout from our business office saying, here's what you pledged and here where you are. And I'm like, oh, I, need, I have some catching up to do. Our family, if your family is anything like mine, when we go on, on uh, summer vacations and we're out of town, uh, we don't give to the church. Uh, we give uh, written checks, uh, and it's part of a practice for helping train our kids and to know that we give every Sunday. And so we write the checks, Sarah does, and, and then she has the kids put it into the plate so they can see that giving is a part of our worship to God. But when we're not here, we don't give, and, and so we can fall a little bit behind. And we've got some catching up to do. And while our current giving is above last year's budget, Uh, it's still not where it's supposed to be. In fact, our expenditures with our expenses in most ministries have been able to keep their budgets, uh, keep their spending below their budget, which is great. But now our expenditures exceed our revenue and we've got a little gap to make. And that's going to require all of us to fulfill the commitment we made last year. How are we doing in fulfilling that commitment? Now when we give, I don't let our children know what we give. They just know that we do give. As Jesus said, our left hand is not supposed to know what our right hand is doing. Unlike the pageant giver that we saw in the movie, we don't want to sing a song of self-adulation every time we give a gift, right? Put money in the plate, wait, wait, wait. We don't do that. In fact, I appreciate the fact that uh, no one here has told me what they're going to give in 2016 because I really don't want to know. I want to avoid that manipulator relationship, you know, the guy who gave the Benji and says, Benji's likes, you know, hymns, come on now. Because the truth is, I really could care less what Benji likes to hear. Uh, What I'm most concerned about is the music that we sing, is it glorifying to God, regardless of the worship style? And specifically, as a Presbyterian minister, where we have the scriptures as the focus of our service of worship, where we center everything around the scriptures that are read and proclaimed, I want to make sure that the songs that are sung are consistent with what's going to be preached that morning. Yes, as we think about all that scripture has to say about giving and how much God has given to us, we are living a life out of gratitude. And and we ask everyone to fill out a pledge card so that we might, as best as possible, be faithful stewards of the resources God has given to us. Did you know that the average Christian in America gives just 2.5% of their gross income to the church in a given year? 2.5%. Now, um, I have read the ESV from beginning to end. It's English Standard Translation. I've read the NIV, the 1984 version. I've read the new NIV. I've read the new King James version. I've read the message. I've read the old King James version. I've read the new Living Translation. I read through the Bible every year. And, and I even know Greek and Hebrew. And nowhere can I find 2.5% in here. Why does the church just give 2.5% average Christian America? Because they fail to plan. They don't make a commitment. They don't think ahead. Like so many people, they give impulsively. They give in the moment, or as that one guy said, he he gives what's left over. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our first fruits, according to Scripture. As we see in Malachi 3, God wants us to give 
a 10% tithe, the first fruits of our resources to him. But why should we give? What should be the great motivation for giving? Well, as we read our text this morning, we can see that the, the church in Macedonia, the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they were very generous in their giving. They were sacrificial in their giving. If we read this in verses two through four, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, the abundance of the Macedonians, of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And following Jesus, the churches in Macedonia were filled with joy. And even though they were being persecuted, even though they were being persecuted and and they were facing economic persecution where people would not hire them because they were Christians or people would not buy from them because they were Christians, even in the midst of their financial turmoil and their struggles and their persecution, with great joy, they, they implored Paul that they might have an opportunity. They earnestly begged Paul that they might have an opportunity to give to the church in Jerusalem. What was it that motivated the Macedonians to be so generous, even in the midst of hard times, to be sacrificial in their giving? What was it that motivated the Macedonians? Were they hoping that they would get a tax break at the end of the year? And the Roman government said, oh, you gave the church, well, let's give you, I don't think so. The Roman government wasn't known for giving tax breaks to anyone, particularly those who gave to a church. What was it that motivated the church in Macedonia? And what is it that should ultimately motivate us in giving back to God? I believe the answer is actually found in verse nine of our text this morning where we read, and Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. When it comes to our motivation, our motivation for giving, our motivation for living, it all comes down to God's grace, doesn't it? Why were the Macedonians so motivated to be so generous amidst their poverty? Because of God's grace. It was God's grace that led the Macedonians to be so sacrificial in their giving. They were simply responding to God's grace, God's unmerited favor towards them that they had experienced in Jesus Christ. For grace is getting from God what we don't deserve. Our sin deserves to be punished. The grace of Jesus tells us that Jesus will take our punishment for us. Our culture tells us that all that we are and all that we have is is based on what we achieve and what we can do, but God's grace reminds us that life is really all about what Jesus has done for us. Most religions tell us that, well, that if we obey God, then we'll be loved. But the the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ tells us that we are loved by God first and foremost, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. And so we obey out of gratitude for his great love. The grace of God that we find in Jesus helps us see that there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. God loves us because he loves us. In his sovereign will, he has chosen to love us. And in Jesus Christ, we can see that God loves us in spite of our sin. For while we were yet sinners, God loved us too much to abandon us in our sin. No, he sent his one and only son who is happy in heaven. 
He sent his one and only son here to this earth to be born as a baby in a manger, a lowly, humble manger. And then he grew up among us. And he served as a carpenter, a hardworking blue-collar man for most of his life. And then he began this three years of ministry where he began to, to teach us. And he began to heal us. And ultimately, he died for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all, so that we might be made right. Our, our sins were atoned for through Christ's death on the cross. And then on the third day, he conquered sin and death when he rose again from the dead. And his victory over sin and death is now ours if we'll simply believe in him. As Paul explains in our text in verse 9 this morning, though Jesus was rich, the son of God, who had everything he needed in heaven, yet for his sake, he became poor. He became a baby. He became a man. And humbled himself, as Paul writes in Philippians, to the point of death on a cross. So that we all might become rich in him. With the eternal inheritance that comes through Jesus Christ. And knowing that our sins are forgiven. And that we have the promise of eternal life. And the assurance in him. You know, over the last few months, I've had to do some pretty tough funerals for some young people who died well beyond their time. And in those moments, as we look to God for comfort, as we look to God for strength, the only hope we have, the only comfort we can find is knowing that because Jesus lives, our loved one now lives. Because Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf, now we can know for full assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord and that our loved ones are now with him in paradise. It was out of gratitude for God's amazing grace. It was out of gratitude for the cross of Christ. It was out of gratitude for the promise of eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. The Macedonians, with great joy, even in the midst of their poverty, gave generously to the church in Jerusalem. It's gratitude that motivated the Macedonians. And it's gratitude for God's grace that it should ultimately motivate us. Out of gratitude for how generous God has been to us, we should respond and be generous like the church in Macedonia was despite their own financial hardship. What do you think might happen if every Christian in America went from their average of 2.5% to where the average Christian in America actually gave a full 10% tithe? What, what do you think God might do in and through the church of the United States of America if we all gave a full 10% back to God? I bet you God would use the church in America to change the world. We would sponsor more missionaries globally. We would send out more people to help proclaim the good news of Christ. In fact, I, I've seen this in our own church. When I, when I first came here five years ago, our, our operating budget was set up in such a way that we were only giving 6.5% to local and global missions. And, and now we've increased that to 12%. And as we give 12% to missions, we're able to, to, to sponsor twice as many missionaries as we used to five years ago. What would happen here locally, if every Christian in Amarillo gave a full 10% of their income to their local church, what might God do through the churches in Amarillo if, if we all gave a full 10% back to God? I bet we, as the churches in Amarillo, could feed every hungry person. We could clothe every impoverished family. We could help them get an education. We could help provide shelter for every homeless person. We would eliminate poverty in Amarillo as we know it today. You know, if you look at next year's 
budget, you can see we have a proposed budget of, of uh, $2.5 million. And this budget is, is very achievable if we all do our part. In order to make this $2.5 million, we need a, an increase of revenue of about 4% in our, in our giving. And the budget is bigger because, we, we, well, we have more needs. The, the insurance costs have gone up. And, uh, you know, we had some uh, property expenditures that are necessity. Like, for instance, I, I learned that we had a, a server, our computer server, that's 10 years old. They're only supposed to last five years. Somehow we got 10 years out of the thing. We have to replace that. There are just things that we've done. And also, we have ministries that are growing. And to keep pace with that growth, we know they're going to need a, a little more money to do what God has called them to do. Just so everyone's clear, though, this is a proposed budget. This won't happen unless we all do our part together. And this Sunday, we're not just asking for you to commit resources, but time and talents as well. Because we know that so much happens here through the work of our volunteers. And so in a moment, we're going to take the offering, and as you, you give... I ask that you would join me in, in humbly asking God to guide you as you make a financial commitment, but also a commitment of your time and your talents as we think about the different ministries within our church that could use your help. As I look at this magazine and thank God for all that he has done in 2015, I'm excited to, to think of how God was able to use our resources in 2015, but also how God's going to use our resources in 2016. Specifically next year, as a commitment to our, as our commitment we have to the authority of Scripture, we're going to take the entire church through the story, through the narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Max Lucado and Randy Frazee have taken the NIV and they've trimmed it down so that it just tells the narrative story from, from Genesis to Revelation, from the story of creation and then Noah and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the Exodus, all the way to Revelation. And starting January 10th, we're going to begin to preach through the entire Bible, the whole narrative story. And then uh, children's Sunday school classes will be participating in this. They'll be learning as we go through this. They'll hear hear what the adults are going to hear in the sermon. And then at lunchtime, families can discuss the the Bible together, the whole story. And then on Wednesday nights, we're going to have uh, an opportunity for adults to go deeper with our Wednesday night Bible studies that we're going to have throughout our church as we go deeper into the story. I believe God wants to do a great work in and through our church in 2016 as we look ahead, but it's going to require all of us to do our part if we want to be the generous, disciple-making church that God wants us to be, where it's all ultimately about God's grace. In gratitude for God's grace, what is God calling you to give back to him in the way of time, talents, and treasures in 2016? I'd ask that you prayerfully join me in making that commitment today. Please join me as he pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your provision. We give you thanks for the great gift of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to be for us the way, the truth, and the life. We give you thanks, O Lord, that in his love for us, he who was rich became poor so that we might be rich in you with the promise of eternal life. Oh God, help us to share that good news with others. Help us to manage our resources in a way that we might make as many disciples as possible, that we might minister to this community, that we might point others to you. Oh God, by your spirit, guide each one of us now as we make a commitment to you as an act of worship this morning. In your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. This morning we're blessed to have Matt Harkins who's gonna share with us a testimony of how giving has helped him grow in his faith as he seeks to follow Jesus Christ today.